you know, it was one of those things that I knew we both knew it didn't matter how much time we spent in the big leagues, how much money we made in the big leagues, that it was there was always an end. No matter what, there's always an end to that career. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we're talking to former TCU and big league right-hander Sam Demmel about his career. Sam grew up with Josh Beckett as his neighbor, so he had the exact template of what being a big league right-hander looks like. He went a little different path than Beckett. We talk about not quite having the draft work out as a high school senior and playing at TCU early in Jim Schlossnagel's run there as TCU went on its ascent as a powerhouse program. Sam gets into going back and forth between starting and the bullpen, spending a sophomore season doing something that I don't think we're going to see another college arm do, at least in this era. We talk about his rise into the big league bullpen and how both he and his wife took special care to prepare for life after baseball early in his career, the steps they took. Really enjoyed having Sam on, especially that perspective, thinking about life after baseball. Hope everyone enjoys listening. Episodes of Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. The best tools list are coming out. Always always great to check those out. And we're getting pretty close to minor league baseball playoffs and year-end lists. Lots of great stuff, as always, going on at BA. Always a good time to be a subscriber. And with that, let's talk to Sam Demmel. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom the Farm, he was a third-round pick in the 2007 draft out of TCU, former big league right-hander Sam Demmel. Sam, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. I appreciate you having me on. Of course, yeah. I've been looking forward to this. As I've said, I think I've said on the show before, uh, my wife's a TCU alum. I have I have hopped on the TCU uh, fanhood bandwagon. So I've been looking forward to this a lot. Let's throw it back to, to high school or at least your amateur ball days. When did you, you first realize that you had a future at the next level of baseball, whether that be college or pro ball? Yeah, so for me, it was my uh, my freshman year at, uh, in, in high school. Actually, the funny thing is, is I grew up next door to uh, Josh Beckett. So we, we shared backyards. So in 99, I actually got to hear the uh, champagne cork pop in his backyard when he went second overall, uh, which was a really cool thing for me as a kid. And then uh, my freshman year of high school, which would have been uh, 2000, 2001, um, I made varsity that year. And that's when I realized, like, okay, 5A school in Texas, making varsity as a freshman, not a common aspect. So um, that offseason, I quit basketball. Um, I didn't see a future in there being six, six foot and can barely shoot and can't run. You usually need to do one of those things. Yeah. You have, you have to have one. Yeah. So I, I focused on uh, on baseball that offseason and saw the velocity spike. And that's my sophomore year high school Um came all district and all and all of the accolades from that so really started focusing on it full time that first off season after my freshman year and, and kind of saw the progression jump um tremendously between that that period of time and then going through high school and and uh being recruited out of there um you know honestly i didn't think i was going to go to college use colleges more as uh, leverage for the draft because that's where i really wanted to go um at that point so Loved TCU. The school was uh, uh, in Fort Worth, which was close enough to home, but far enough away from home. And, um, you know, the tuition there was big. So I used that as, as leverage. And uh, I think it worked against me. But at the end of the day, I got I got a, a great school and uh, play for Slosh and, and uh, propel myself from there. But I would say just knowingly that there was a future in it was probably that offseason between freshman and sophomore year and then going into the senior was where I knew it was going to be professional and not just college. Well, with that, you you had, I mean, the the high school right-hander template living next door to you and, and a couple years older with that in Beckett. And while Beckett was, you know, if it weren't for Josh Hamilton, he might have been the first high school right-hander ever drafted 1-1. Um, obviously, you know, he was like the, what is he, like 6-5, like the the prototype. But you you had that template to stack yourself up against. So as you're getting into senior year, and you've got your college commitment, you're evaluating pro ball. How did you evaluate your, you know, yourself as a prospect, especially compared to, I mean, you know, Beckett is one of those once in a generation guys, but you, you had that frame of reference. How did you evaluate yourself going into the draft? For me, it was really interesting because 
you know, being a six foot 185 pound right-hander, there wasn't really a prominent market for that at a high school with uh, high draft picks. And I think that's actually what helped me so much on the college ask route as well, because colleges looked at me as a really good high chance I was coming to them because of a six foot 185 righty. And um, that's, you know, I got a lot of full ride offers because of that. They, there was a higher percentage of me coming on campus from evaluating it on the professional level. Was, uh, it was really interesting to see the different different uh, responses from different teams and how they were looking at me. I got a lot of teams that were looking at it as possibilities of starter, more more likely a, a reliever back end type guy. Being you know even in high school, my senior year I was ninety four ninety six, but I, I had a ton of movement, and that that was my big thing was the sinkers uh, and moving the ball around from that standpoint, the late movement. So. It was, I, I saw myself somewhere in that back end, uh, early second, back end, second round. And that's where I was okay with in, in that time period. And then when that passed, I made the decision when I got the calls in the third, fourth, and fifth from other teams of, you know, that was it. I was second rounder before, or I'm going to school. And I think that helped me from that standpoint, because that's kind of borderline where I was at that period of time. Yeah. With kind of hindsight in that, how knowing yourself now and then knowing what you know, you got a, a, a little taste of a ball, you know, you kind of, you made it to high pretty quick, but at 18, how do you think you would have handled short season, the complex league, high a, any, any of those, do you, th- in retrospect, do you think you were ready for something like that? Honestly, I don't know. I never experienced what that was like, um, in my career. I know, right. I know going into it, I only spent three years in the minor leagues before I got to the big leagues. And having to do that for five or six years to work your way up, I think that would have been really brutal. Um, the lower levels of the minor leagues is not fun. The uh, the fun parts when you're out between the lines, but the rest of it's you know it takes a, a very mature and young kid to to get through that. So I think the college route helped me a ton, and most of my career was spent and spent AAA in the big leagues. And so having that ability to sit back on and and, and reflect on was big from the standpoint of I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have enjoyed the lower levels very much, even at the age of 18. Um, I got a lot, a lot of direction, a lot of growth that happened really, really quickly in college from uh, learning from Slosh and, and from the staff there. So I'm, I'm happy the route that it ended up going for sure. So you make it to campus and at that time where what we think of TCU now, so talking here in 2022, that's multiple runs to Omaha, you know, Schloss had that great run before making his move to um to AM. Back then he's he's on the job pretty recently. I think before you got there they had won a conference title, but there's still kind of the proof of con- like trying to build proof of concept and take that program to the next level. It hadn't been to supers, anything like that when you're coming in and when, when guys are coming in, you're making the choice to go to, to go to that program. Like, and like you said, you'd had a, a lot of other offers and stuff like that. What, what makes you buy into a program like that and, and believe in that there is that ceiling? Cause I doubt you would pick somewhere where you didn't think there was the ceiling to make the run to Omaha. Cause that's what, you know, 99% of college baseball players are there for. Uh, absolutely. You know, the interesting thing is, is if, um, if I, did, if I graduated high school in 2005 and not 2004, uh, I never would have went to TCU because TCU moved from Conference USA into the Mountain West Conference my sophomore year. And I never would have went to TCU with them in the Mountain West Conference. And with Conference USA, the, the competition was way better. And it was a good baseball conference at that time. Um, so timing has a lot to do with everything. You know, Todd Whitting was the recruiting coordinator at TCU at my time. And he had been recruiting me for about two years to go to U of H. Um, and I had a really good relationship with him. He went radio silent on me for about two and a half weeks, which was crazy for him. He would call every chance he got, answer they would allow. So he called me up and said, hey, I know you know nothing about this place. Uh, you haven't been recruited by him. You don't know anything. I want you to jump on a plane and fly out here. Come check it out just out of respect for me. And that's the only reason I ever ended up at TCU is, is because of Tom Whitting. The campus was phenomenal. The facilities were great. Um, and I knew what was going on with Whitting and Slosh. And you could get that vibe of how that was going to grow. And um, the knowledge base that come out of it was, was phenomenal. So I was actually in Slosh's first recruiting class. And it you know, was me, Matt Carpenter, 
um, you know, Andrew Walker, a lot of guys that played professionally. Uh, obviously, Carpenter's made it pretty well. Good name for himself. He's done decent. Yeah, you could say. It takes that dynamic and that personality of guys to trust in it and to run with it. We didn't accomplish what we wanted to, uh, but I think we set the base for that springboard into what TCU has become. I always like asking about the first fall because guys are coming in. Most high schoolers, especially guys like yourself who had draft attention, never really struggled. Most high school hitters aren't touching you. You can get fastballs by them. Um, never been in, in like a rigorous program, college program like that. And then you're adapting like any other freshman. You're, you know, you're 18. You're trying to, you're learning to be on your own for the first time. How did you handle the, the adjustment to college and college baseball? I think for me, the biggest adjustment was um, <laughs> just trying to get through classes and, and creating your own schedule and, and uh, just that aspect of it. From the baseball side, for me, it was always once I got between the lines, it was I didn't have any issues with anything. It was more of the uh, the confidence, the cocky ar- arrogance of when I'm on the mound. Um, I didn't have any any res- reservations at that point. Um, my struggle with performance wise came probably a couple of weeks into the freshman year of trying to learn how to get extended and go through at games. And the pace picks up a little bit at college, but it's more along the lines of smarter hitters, better hitters and getting through lineups, uh, for the second time. And that didn't hit me in the fall. We were a pretty young team and everybody was kind of learning together on that aspect of it. But the time management and just starting to turn baseball into more of a career and less of a extracurricular, if you want to say it that way, um, that really started that freshman year. But I, I found myself at the field more than in the, in the uh, study hall and, and focusing on that side of it. And then by junior, yeah, by junior year, it was just more along the lines of prepping and getting ready to go off. I was going to ask is with that Conference USA schedule, I know. Uh, a lot of baseball players, you major in baseball first and whatever you're taking classes in second. But that that Conference USA travel schedule, I was kind of looking at th- what the away trips are required with that. It's it's Hattiesburg, it's St. Louis, it's uh, Memphis, Charlotte. I mean, not short trips. It's not like the you know the Big Twelve schedule. Although conferences now we're we're looking at just one big blob, but um, not not a lot of bus rides. When you're that first freshman year, when you're managing, you got to stay eligible. So when you're you're managing that, you're managing long flights. Um, you know, fortunately DFW, you can get direct to anywhere, but stuff like that. Like how how difficult is the transition from you know just high school classes to managing that college course load, staying eligible with that with that increased travel? You pad your schedule in the spring to where it's pretty soft, and you take the harder courses in the fall. You know, there's That's the move. a lot of communication classes in the, in the spring and, and the, uh, as tedious, I guess, or <laughs> as hard, I think I took sports management twice spring and, and, you know, they do a pretty good job of understanding and working around the schedules, but, and, and you'll also notice that a good number of guys were in the same classes. So, uh, but the travel schedule, yeah, I mean, it's brutal. You're, it's a little worse now too. I think they play two games midweek and, you know, you're leaving on a Thursday and you're coming back on a Sunday night. You got a 9 a.m. class on Monday morning and then you roll right back out and on Tuesday and go play. And it, it can be it can be pretty daunting, but the schools do a pretty good job of working with us. So your role heading into the spring, obviously, I'm sure like like most guys on the staff, you're you know, you're gunning for that. Start, one of those weekend starter spots. You did make a lot of starts that spring when you're gunning for that weekend job. There's older guys there who have been, you know, eyeing that you know, those weekend roles for years. And with you, especially with how the rest of your career went, kind of juggling between starting in the pen, how did you evaluate yourself and thinking, I I deserve to be a starter, I want to be a starter versus what might have been best for your skill set? Yeah, it's it was interesting for me that the career there at TCU. My freshman year, I knew I had a weekend rotation spot coming in to the uh, spring after the fall. Uh, Lance Broadway was, was the number one, obviously. I mean, he was, I think he was runner up in the golden spikes that year with 15 and one record. I mean, it was pretty Nintendo numbers he put up. Um, and then aside from that, we had a transfer from Nebraska and Brad Furnish, who was a second round pick. And, um, 
you know, I knew the three of us were coming into the weekend to start that year. And so when I, when I went into it, it was more along the lines of trying to learn from Lance as much as I could and, and uh, figure out how to stretch the games out. Um, you know, coming out of high school, you have that mentality that you're going to strike everybody out. They're going after the punch out on everybody you face. And when you start getting eight, nine inning games and better lineups and you're at hundred pitches in five innings, it's, it, it's not, it's not a good thing. Um, so I was learning from that. The, the switch to the bullpen my sophomore year, I was actually, I was a Friday night guy my sophomore year, start of the season. And I want to say I was somewhere around five and one, six and one with a, a good ERA. And we were doing really well on uh, Fridays. And then Saturdays, um, Arietta was doing really well going through the sixth or seventh inning. And then our bullpen was struggling at the time. And Slosh comes up to me and, and we're in um, – be where at BYU and he comes up to me, he goes, Hey, uh, you got the, you got the most recovery. Your, your arm bounces back the quickest. What are your thoughts on closing Friday or Saturday and starting on Sunday for us? And so, you know, being a, you know, 20 year old kid wanting the team to win, it's like, yeah, let's do it. And so, you know, we look back at that transition where, you know, out of the bullpen, I was dominant. And then my starts on the, after that period of time, ERA started to go up and everything started to happen from that standpoint, but it was outing number two of the weekend stretching, trying to get to the seventh or eighth inning after closing on Friday night or Saturday night and Sunday was, was pretty brutal. So after that, uh, that year, Slosh and I sat down and he said, you know, you kind of need to choose which route you want to go. And I just said, which route's best for the team. I go, I'm going to go out to the cave and I'm going to close. I, I can't put too many, too many more innings on my arm this year just from doing the dual kind of role. And uh, so we went that route and I made that decision from the standpoint of, I knew that's where a lot of teams saw me in the, in the future. And um, I thought it might help kind of getting accustomed to that role that I've never done before. And um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of how everything started from the relief role going into my junior year and staying put in that, in that situation. And it's kind of the reverse Lincecum where Washington would throw him on, start him on Friday and then he'd close on Sunday. They, uh, they don't, they don't usually ask kids to do that anymore. So it's uh, an interesting little throwback. It's always the six foot righty too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, they're not, they're not putting the six, seven horse out, out doing that. Um, with, with that, I mean, you, you made the choice for, you know, where you profiled in pro ball and things like that. But when you switch to just the back end of the bullpen, both in the Cape and full time at TCU, it seems to agree with you. What like what about that agreed with your skill set with your mentality? Like what did it? How does it change your strategy? You know, pitching the ninth or pitching, you know, coming in in the, the seventh to finish out versus starting out in the in the first inning. Where's the change in, in Sam, the, the guy that on the mound? I for me, I loved it because I got to then attack hitters. To I wanted punch outs. I wanted to strike people out, and I wanted to attack them and and not so much have to worry about game management and what is it going to be like the second time through the lineup it was my best stuff against them and go for it and don't worry about getting ready for a second or third time through the lineup uh, it's more of a, a kind of a bulldog mentality of screw you here it comes and the other thing for me what i loved is i knew every day that there was a chance i was going to play and as a starter you know, and I finished up with with L.A. and Triple A with them and, and kind of switched back into that starter role for a little bit. And I enjoyed the change of pace. Um, but, man, pitching once every five days gets kind of boring. It, you don't have the opportunity to get in every day. It's it for me. It was more of a job at that point uh, at the end of my career. But I enjoyed it. But I love the ability to know that I can come in, close out a game and uh, finish it off and, you know, just go out and blow it out and just let, let it all stay out there. It was, it was much more fun for me. And that, and I thought there was a lot more pressure in the ninth than there ever is in the first through fifth. You mentioned the Cape Cape's kind of for, for top, top prospects, at least got the, the quintessential college baseball summer experience, the exposure, you know, scouts everywhere, the history of the league, you know, kind of the charm of it being in that area, playing those high school fields. How much do you actually develop as a pitcher in the Cape? Like how much better do you get? Uh, I would say uh, if you do it correctly, tremendously better. And the reason why, what I learned how to do in the Cape, which was terrifying in college with an aluminum bat, was pitch inside. I learned how to attack hitters on the inner half of the plate and have confidence in that 
as opposed to with aluminum bat, you run a fastball in on somebody's hands and they hit a little blooper out to left. Or you run you run a little cutter in on a on a lefty and he gets a little bit of barrel on it and he gets a double down the line off of you. You put a wood bat in their hands and you execute that pitch, that bat's shattered and it's pop up to the third. The confidence that it brings from learning how to do that and execute translates so much more um, even pitching to aluminum bats because then you have the confidence to do it. I think that was the biggest thing for me was was learning how to really utilize the inner half. And you're facing better hitters, um, more well-rounded lineups, and it, it's preparing you for that next level. I wouldn't say from the coaching standpoint, they're not teaching you anything from a mechanical. It's more of just uh, picking their brain on you know, where they've been, how they've, how they've attacked, what they've seen work. Um, but it's not a mechanical league. It's just an experienced league learning how to uh, execute. And kind of touching on what you said earlier, you know, as you mentioned, you guys do make the switch into the Mountain West while you're in, in school. Did you know? You said you wouldn't have attended TCU if if they had been in the Mountain West. Did it make for that much of a of a difference when you were in there in the moment? I think the competition wasn't as good um, top to bottom, top to bottom through the the conference. Um, you know, we had, we had series where you're playing a very subpar team. Uh, and I don't think, I don't really know what it is like now over there. I know TCU being in the big 12, there's not a really a night you're taking off and, um, or that you can let down. That was for me when it came to, you'd have some nights where I do, if I missed over the middle of the plate, it was fine. Uh, cause stuff wise was about to be able to produce. Um, so I wouldn't have made that decision with that, I was wanting the competition and the, the ability to really the ability to host a regional and host a super regional and get to the college world series. And it's impossible to do that. And uh, not impossible because TCU did end up doing it, but um, we had years where I think my junior year, we should have been hosting without a question. And we end up at rice as a number two seed uh, and, and the competition and strength of schedule has a lot to do with that. With that too, when you're at TCU, Lupton is is still pretty brand new. I mean, it's still nice park, top tier college baseball facility. Um, and over the last twenty years, a lot of the a lot of the programs in the sport have have upgraded their facilities. We've got a lot of you know most top tier schools have pitching labs, all, all these things. In your time through like oh five to oh seven, what was the disparity like? in in facilities like were there weekends where you're like man we got to go play in a dump compared to what you've got sitting at home at, at with lupton i mean there are some places that you have to go that are miserable um but at the end of the day it doesn't matter where you're at what level you're at you're going to go to ballparks that are not ideal conditions and from the big leagues to little league I mean, there's places we went to i went to in the big leagues and if i never went back again i was totally happy with that um, my, uh, my college ballpark, I played at a D2 school and we were that place. We were that place. No one wanted to go to, which we kind of relished in, honestly. Yeah. I would say probably the worst place that I ever went to was air force and had nothing to do with the facilities. It's just, every time we went there, it was sleeting and, and 15 degrees and you just do it. Um, but the ballpark wise, you're going to have some bad ones. I'll tell you what, the worst one I ever played in the minor leagues was Bakersfield in California. After every game, we had to pack our bags up and put them on the top of the uh, lockers just in case it rained because the locker room would flood. Oof. I mean, so you, but you have, you, it makes you stronger. It builds you through those things. And, and uh, those are some of the things I still remember to this day. You live in Fort Worth now. So where, where your alma mater is, is it easier or harder to root for your alma mater when you're no longer in control of the outcome? <laughs> it's, you know what? I enjoy it. Um, I don't make it to nearly as many games as I should. We've got season tickets and I've been to two games in two years. <laughs> Tough ratio. Yeah, so may, may, may want to rethink that one this year. Um, yeah. Might not want to dox yourself. You might find someone in your seats next time. No, it's just one of those things. It's, it's not tough, um, but I'm, I'm so busy on the other side of, of life and, and everything we've got going on that I, I enjoy being around TCU and running into people. And that's one thing about TCU that's really interesting to me is, the amount of people that go to TCU that stay in Fort Worth. It's a, it's a large contingent of, of graduates and students that, you know, they don't, they don't matriculate outside of, of Fort Worth. They, they stay here, they come here and they stay. 
So it's it's a it's a little purple town now. Definitely, definitely. So walk me through your draft experience because you get tagged. With you you know you have a great junior season uh, closing for TCU. You get tagged again the kind of the short right hander back end of the bullpen guy. You get tagged with the thing that is hey this guy could move quick. You know one of the, there's there's a couple of those guys in every draft where it's like the college reliever that's like hey this guy could be in your bullpen soon. Did you have conversations with scouts whoever was that in? Did you have kind of an eye on any certain team or anything like that of they might take me and move me quick, maybe start me in double A or something like that. Yeah. We had a couple of teams that uh, had interest later in the, uh, the first and early in the second um, that were looking at me for that particular reason uh, to move quickly through the system. But I, I have no idea what, I know uh, what happened with the Yankees was, what is his name? Gosh, Andrew Brackman. If I remember right, yes, he fell. They didn't expect him to be there. And then uh, as drafts go, everything kind of changes when you get in, get going through it. Um, I got the phone call from Oakland at the beginning of the third. And uh, I knew the guy pretty well. He goes, what the hell are you still doing on here? <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, if you make us, we're taking you in, in 10 picks. And I was like, all right, well, that's cool. Um, but then they sent me straight to high A. Uh, it, it took – it took an extra couple of weeks to get the get signed kind of put me against the the back wall on, on uh, just getting in the system and going. And I think that hurt me more than anything, but that was also the year where everybody decided to do a 15% uh, pay cut on signing bonuses. So I didn't know anything about it. I just told my agent, figure it out and, and get me going. So, you know, I went straight out to Stockton, California, going to high from college is a lot bigger jump than people think it is. Um, or than I thought it was. And so so there were some struggles there and uh, went down for the last couple weeks of the season to low A. And it was like pitching in high school again after seeing those guys tonight. And then kind of just went from there. But the draft process is so – I don't even know how to explain it. It's You hear something from 22 different teams. You know, we love you. We'll do this. We'll do this. when, When can you sign? What can you do? Uh, when can you be out there? And it's all just a interview process for a job. And uh, I see it now. Then I thought I was just talking to somebody that, you know, really likes me and, and wanted me to go into their system and, and progress. But it's, it's a business. Baseball is a business. And the further you get up and the higher you get up, the more you learn it. You mentioned those struggles in high A. It's interesting, kind of night and day, looking at your numbers between high A, your first year in pro ball and your second year in pro ball. Is it was it arm fatigue? Is it the difference in intensity? It, what what are those differences that make it so much more of a difficult transition than you thought it would be? I think for me, it was comfort, uh, not feeling out of place. That first time I was there, you know, I'm 21. Most people in that league at that point were uh, 23, 24. I think I even had a 26 and 27 year old on my team. And, and you're, you're perceived when you walk in that locker room as they, they've been working their way up through the system to get there. And you just get drafted and you get thrown here where they've spent the last two or three years to get to. So it's it's a little bit of a humbling experience to walk in there and see the professional side of it. Um, and then that lifestyle is, is a lot different than college. When in college, you've got a seven o'clock game. You're at the field at 3.30 after your classes for a seven o'clock game. And even the minor leagues or the big leagues, I'm at the field at 12.30, 1 o'clock. And the preparation and learning how to do the pregame workouts and routines and get ready for the game. And then um, I think the most challenging thing that took me the longest to real, to figure out was how to come down after those games. The adrenaline rush that you feel after those games, um, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. And you got to get up the next day and do it again. And, and you know, most people, they have to be at their peak for work performance between, you know, 9 and 5 and Really, honestly, most people are between 11 and 2 when they're actually performing at their peak. And when you think about it from a baseball standpoint, you as a reliever, I'd have to be at my peak between 9, you know, 8.30 and 10 o'clock at night. Um, that's what took the longest for me to figure it out. And I struggled with that really bad that first year coming into uh, high out of college. Did you struggle at all with finding adrenaline because you'd gone from three years of closing conference games and pitching regional games and college every really every game matters, especially if you're you're vying for a, a super regional spot. You kind of from the Mountain West, you got to win out. And 
you're closing the Wednesday morning kids game against Fresno or whatever it might be. Like, did you have any problems finding finding it from within and getting getting amped for a minor league save situation? I didn't. Um, not coming up, like coming up through the system, trying to get to the big leagues. It was easy to find adrenaline looking at it as dominate and go up, dominate and go up. And and uh, I never struggled with it at that point. When I got sent down um, in Scranton, when the Yankees sent me down in spring training, I, 13, 13, whatever year that was. Um, and I was in Scranton and I was just closing out games. And I think I had some Nintendo numbers that year too. You did. And there was nowhere to go. And, uh, and I asked I, my agent and I both asked Cashman multiple times, "Can you just trade me?" And just you know, just his response is always, "Why you're throwing really well? If we need you, we got you." And so that was the year where I was just sitting there going, "What is <laughs> trying to find adrenaline and trying to get up something when you know there's nowhere to go?" That was the toughest part for me. And then that next year when I went to uh, I signed with the Dodgers, had a great spring training, didn't make the team, go to Albuquerque, and you're throwing in a place where it's 30-mile-an-hour winds straight out every day, and and it, and it's Albuquerque. Um, you're pitching on Mars. <laughs> it was really tough there. That's why I tried to be a starter at the end of it. I was like, I just need something else for excitement, and you know, I'm, I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere, and, and that was that was a fun one, and that, that was the way to end it, but... Yeah, going up through the system, you always see that ceiling that you can get to, and you can see that next level, and there's the adrenaline. And once you get to AAA on the way up, so you you make it to by by 2010 or by t- 2009, you're in Sacramento and you're you're throwing well. You basically establish it that I am a a good above average AAA bullpen guy, which means there's only one more place to go. Is it? Compared to how you felt in in New York later in your career after you'd been in the big leagues, and it's not even like you're knocking on the door. It's like, why isn't this opening? When you're in AAA and you're on the way up, does it feel like a true next man up situation? Like I'm the 28th man on the roster. I'm just gonna wait patiently for for a an opening. Or are you still is every outing like a test? I got to prove myself. I got this is the one that's gonna get me up. Like, is there just patience set in, or is it is there still like a sense of urgency and a, and a sense of worry every time out? Well, it's different for uh, guys at different parts of their career. Um, actually, when I got called up to AAA. Uh, to Sacramento, when I got called in the office, I honestly thought I was going to the big leagues. Just, and that was my mindset. You know, that was another one of those years where, that first half of the year there, I, I want to say I gave up like two runs in thirty innings, and you had a .61 ERA. Is literally not. It is hard to do that in a video game. Yeah, I, it, it was. It was one of those things like everything was working and, and control was there, and and that's so I was kind of surprised when I went to AAA at that point. I looked at it as more of, uh, you know, there was nothing else for me to prove in AA, and they didn't have a spot for me up there. But when I got to Sacramento, and you get into that, it's really interesting. You got guys sitting in the locker room that are reading the newspaper every single morning to see if there was any injuries in uh, in Oakland that day, or you know, it's it's a different, it's just different vibe in the clubhouse. And for me, it was more of I didn't understand why I wasn't having that opportunity. And that's where the business side of it comes in. It's not necessarily the progression on the field. It's more of the opportunity at that point of when it comes. And if the, especially with Oakland, if the finances match with it and what they want to do, if they want to start your clock and things of that nature. So I got, you know, the pitching coordinator there told me that year, stay Stay where you're going. You didn't get called up right now, but you know you're not forty. You didn't have to be put on the forty man at that point. I was only in year two, and um, they wanted to give a couple other guys opportunities to prove something in September because I was still on the younger side. And so I got my first big league camp the next year, and you you know you just realize it's no longer it's not just a ability wise. It's an opportunity. It's a pecking order. Um, and then the team always has another agenda that they're working that you have no idea what it is. So 2010, you have one of the more interesting call-up stories that, uh, that, that I've seen so far on the show. Walk me through that experience. So I was in, uh, we were at home in Sacramento. I get a text message from, uh, Slosh Nagel, um, after a game and he goes, Hey, did you get traded? And I started talking about he goes, oh, nothing, nothing. I just had somebody reach out to me. I was just curious uh, if you heard anything. 
So I, I have no idea. I asked him what he was talking about, who, who reached out. He would not respond to me. And then I get a phone. That's KG in itself right there. Like, oh, no, I broke some news I shouldn't have broke. I was like, what the hell is going on? And so the next morning, I get a phone call at uh, about 745 in the morning, which is crazy early for having a night game that day. And it's my agent. And he goes, he goes, hey, man, how you feeling? I was like, I go, I'm tired. Like, it's 730 in the morning. What are you doing? He goes, he goes, they haven't called you yet, have they? Hasn't called me with what he goes. Shit, I wasn't supposed to tell you this. He goes, but man, you just got traded to the Diamondbacks. Um, you're going to the big leagues and you're meeting the team in Boston tonight. And I just was like, first of all, at 7:45, don't screw with me. He's like, no, seriously, they, uh, David Force was supposed to call you already. And so I'm like, trying to figure this out. Like, this is amazing. And um, so then Force calls me like six minutes later, and he, I answer right away. He goes, you already know, don't you? Said, yeah. So, um, so I jumped on a plane four hours later. Um, my wife met me out there. We got in 1130 at night. We go from stock or from Sacramento to the Ritz Carlton in Boston. And then the next day was, uh, making my debut, get to the field. The only day in my entire career where I wanted to go out for batting practice and it got rained out. And then, uh, I think the funniest thing was when I came in that night, I came in in the eighth inning, we were down, I think, 5-3. And um, coming in in Fenway, and the entire stadium's chanting, beat L.A. Because the Celtics are playing the Lakers for the NBA championship. And I was like, nobody has a clue on here. And it was fantastic. (laughs) And it started off with uh, face J.D. Drew, Adrian Beltre and Mike Cameron for my first three. And you went one, two, three. So I, I was going to ask you, you, you go in, you're facing those guys and it, those are guys. Beltre is going to be a hall of famer. JD drew made all the money. Mike Cameron is the, the goat. Are you thinking about, okay, this is what I have to do. You know, I got to attack these guys this way, kind of going through your process as you normally would, or are you just on the mound like, oh my God, that's Adrian Beltre? Uh, well, you know what the funny thing was, is when I got in there and that jog in, I was like, this is surreal. And my you know, heart's pounding at 100 miles an hour. I get on the mound, I start going through my warm-up routine. And um, what was funny, what really calmed me, and it was a weird thing, but uh, – Jim Joyce was behind the plate. He was the uh, umpire back there, plate umpire. And it was literally like a week after the uh, Armando Galarraga thing where he screwed up the call oh, first God. base. So on the he's, first he's just the, the most miserable man on the planet but at that point. He was super nice. And he was like, hey, do you want your ball? And I looked at him and I was like, wow, you just made such a bad mistake a week ago. <laughs> and it kind of got my mind off of everything. I got up there and uh, I think I spiked my first pitch and then locked in. But um it was just it was really humbling and really interesting to see it at that moment of where i was at and it kind of kind of in a weird way so to tie in a lot of the things that you had just mentioned uh you you know suddenly you're you're staying at the ritz carlton in boston you're you're on the big league roster the rest of that year you're you're making more money you're suddenly living living the big league life. I'm curious. And based off what one of the ventures that, that you and your wife have now, is there any, is there any wine culture in the big leagues? I think you, you mentioned the NBA, you know, the NBA finals, there's now this like NBA wine group of guys. Like you're always hearing like LeBron James talk about, talk about wine. You and your wife, uh, you know, have a, have a wine venture that we'll get into. How, how do you spend your social life? Is there, is there a wine culture or is it still, is it still beers in the clubhouse? Like how did that come into your life essentially? Well, so the wine aspect of it, it's not necessarily the indulging in the wine drinking. Um, Jennifer and I have always been kind of that entrepreneurial type mindset. Um, we were flipping houses while I was in the minor leagues and in the big leagues, we were, you know, doing some investing in rental properties and some more flips and on the real estate side. Um, but what we've always watched were different industries coming to Texas. And it was always five years later. Um, we'd be on the West coast and we'd see um, orange theory. And, you know, what was out there was delicious deliveries. Now we call it Uber eats and, 
um, the other aspects. And we kept watching all this stuff and we'd come back home and, and um, people would be like, man, have you ever heard of this place? Like, yeah, five years ago, Jennifer was doing it in LA or, you know, in the orange theory or yeah, we had delicious deliveries in Scottsdale for the last four years. What are you guys talking about? Oh no, it just came here. So we kind of started going out and looking for different opportunities to bring that we thought would be um, concepts that would eventually come here, but how do we get them here first? And that's kind of where we fell into uh, on the wine side. We were actually in Napa on our 10 year anniversary and um, we ran into it and just said, you know, let's just do it. And two weeks later we had a lease on, on the place in Fort Worth. So it, it's, it's more of finding things to bring here that, challenge us um that we see as fits and something that we can spread so while you were playing you were you were already planning for life after baseball even like you're a rookie in the big leagues like you're on you're on the ascent you guys were already thinking about just things and other aspects for life after baseball yeah i mean i've got uh, jennifer my wife's is extraordinarily intelligent um she graduated tcu business school with a 4.0 in real estate and finance and um, there was no keeping her from uh, enjoying, like working and and building something. And so, you know, it was one of those things that I knew we both knew it didn't matter how much time we spent in the big leagues, how much money we made in the big leagues. That it was there was always an end, no matter what. There's always an end to that career. Um, and so we decided to make sure that we weren't a statistic we weren't you know had a great great run of it great lifestyle but when it's all said and done now now how do you live you know how do you that's the biggest problem how do you go from making the that money in the big leagues to making fifty thousand dollars a year and living a lifestyle that you're enjoying after living that lifestyle for that long period of time um so we started setting ourselves up pretty early when when we had the ability to well back to that time in the big leagues you're obviously while you're there you're trying to stay there with you go from the high leverage back end of the bullpen situations in, in the minors, you're, you're closing games at most of your stops. You get to the D backs and more of your uh, opportunities are lower leverage opportunities on that team. Is there, I, I guess are low leverage big league situations, more high pressure than high pressure minor league, like save situations. Oh, absolutely. Um, 100%. The, just the adrenaline, the atmosphere, what it means uh, when you're there, it's it's definitely much more. It's more high leverage, even in a low leverage situation, because your job, your career, your future's on the line with what you're doing. Um, you know, opening day in 2011 was it was my first full season, and Gibby comes up to me and he goes, you know, he's telling everybody their roles in the outfield before. Um, before the first game and he told me he goes you're gonna be my fireman i was like well what does that mean he goes whenever i need you to get me the hell out of something i'm bringing you and to this day i still don't know what he mean what he meant but it was always runner on first with one out bases loaded one out first and second one out nobody out get me out of the situation and so it was he, you're, you're the flex seal he wanted there's a leak there's a leak and you're the flex tape there's a leak and you got to plug it wanted a ground ball to short you know it, he wanted me to get get us double play uh, he brought me in that first night against Tulo was up runner on second with one out and uh, I get to the mound he goes I want you to throw four balls straight at Tulo don't let him put anything in play and then get a double play from Helton I was like <laughs> all right what, could you just have the last guy walk Tulo and then bring me in but um, that was Gibby it was awesome so it was just different situations and learning it and I got, I got utilized a lot early on. I had these shoulder troubles right around, uh, I think, June, end of June that year. And it, it took me a long time to bounce back from that. But it was – it's a lot tougher when you don't have an established role in the big leagues. But it's also one of those things where you have to establish yourself to get it. Coming up through the minor leagues, it was always – prospects are always established in what they're going to do because they, they view them as we're training you to do this job in the big leagues or we're trying to get you to that place so you have that established role once you get to the big leagues it's about being one of eight in the bullpen or seven in the bullpen and how do you survive and once you 
if you get to that point, you haven't you haven't established a role. You start you start doing the org shuffle because suddenly you know those relievers are the most expendable for the forty man spot or when they're out of options and things like that. You start start doing the shuffle waivers to the Astros and the Yankees then to the Dodgers. Does it matter whose mound you pitch on? Like, do any of those orgs kind of put their hands on you and say, we want you to try this or be different in this way? Or is it you are you and the mound doesn't, the mound, the organization, the jersey doesn't really matter? I learned that real quick. Yeah. I mean, once, once I went to Houston and then in spring training got shipped over to the Yankees, it was more along the lines of, I just want a mound to throw off of and a team to play for. And, and then, my mindset was in order to have the opportunity to play on a playoff team and worry about that, you've got to establish yourself. And it's more of the opportunity as opposed to the winning of the pennant or any of that at that nature. My first, you know, three years with Arizona, um, it was all about, you know, that 2011 season when we won the West and, and go to play the Brewers. I mean, that was electric. That was phenomenal. I loved just the adrenaline, just of a playoff game, just being there. But, you know, in the same situation, if you don't have the opportunity to suit up, does it really matter if you're not there? Um, and, and that's what was tough there. You know, I, I struggled a little bit when I came back from the shoulder stuff and um, Brad Ziegler takes my roster spot the next day. After throwing really well all year, it was, well, we, we're going to bring somebody else in to take you. They trade for somebody and send you down and you're just – you know, you realize that the business of that at that moment. So it's more important to have the opportunity to establish and get comfortable than it is to, um, I guess, win at that point. You know, you look at guys that have struggled at their first part of their career and then blossomed into big careers. You look at where they start at. You look at Greg Maddox with Chicago. He wasn't he wasn't throwing up a 3-0, a 2.1 every year in his first two years. He was a five and a half until he learned how to pitch. And then uh, you look at Arietta in Baltimore. Baltimore wasn't winning pennants. They had the ability to give him the chance to struggle. You know, I think that second year before he got traded to Chicago, he had almost a 70 RA. And then he gets a new new life and and you see, uh, see him blossom. So the situation that you're in has a lot to do with the ability to establish and then and then you go for it did you have the roadmap for yourself on if you'd gotten another shot in the big like you'd had that experience and were there a couple things where you said if i can improve on this this and this or i can change now that i know how life is in the big leagues and how these hitters are if i i know what i need to do if i like did you have a roadmap of these are the changes i'm going to make and that's going to make me a more successful big league pitcher than my 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 first stint Yes. Yeah. For me, it was my, my first stint up there was all about pitching to how um, they wanted me to throw at that moment. Like I give you one in ground ball. So it was sinker cutters. I'd ever utilize my changeup. I probably threw 3% changeups in my time in the big leagues. Well, my changeup was my best pitch. It's my, you know, it's my punch out pitch. And so when I got sent down, I was like, okay, I got to get back to me. I got to get back to away from pitching to, uh, this much contact in these situations and understanding when it's time to put somebody away. And, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult because you're at a place where somebody tells you to do something and they have the ability to send you out and change your life. I mean, when I got, when I got traded to the big leagues or traded to the Diamondbacks and clubs to the big leagues, I went from making $2,500 a month to $2,600 a day. You, I mean, that's a massive change in lifestyle, a massive change where it's, well, I've got to be able to succeed at this level. What do they need me to do? Um, and that initial change in just the everyday um, mindset, even slightly where you don't realize it, can have a massive impact on everything. Um, and so when I went down and I got got to reestablish myself as where I where I saw my weaknesses and my strengths and work on them and and getting that back, I was I was ready for the opportunity. Um, but I never got, I never got the second shot and then, you know, tried to become a starter and throw a hundred pitches in an outing and <laughs> Tommy John two weeks later. Well, with Tommy John, we, especially as fans now, we, we kind of take it for granted. Okay. He's out for a year. He's going to be back next year. Yeah. Back, you know, back, back the same. Is that, is that what you thought when you heard those words? So 
I knew it was going to be a long road on mine. Um, and then Andrews did the surgery. And then when I got, I got to post off with him, um, Dr. Andrews said, well, that was the worst one I've ever done. Your rehab's going to be miserable. Uh, and he, and he's done a few. He's done a few. Yeah. He pulled out four bone chips about the size of quarters, um, gave them to me in one of the little medical things. Uh, funny story on that is we left it in a VRBO in Arizona while I was, uh, rehabbing, left it in the freezer. So somebody got a real nice, uh, surprise in there, but this might be floating around on eBay at some point. So it was, it was a really rough rehab. It was about 18 months, but I did come back strong. Uh, I was throwing the ball really well and everything was there except for me. Um, I'd had 16 months of being at home with my kids, taking them to school, picking them up from school, um, starting to work on some stuff on the real estate side and doing all this rehab and then watching a few games on TV, but not really being involved in baseball for that, that period of time. Um, and when I got back to full strength and, and I was ready to go for spring training, I went out to Arizona to throw for a couple of teams. And after the first day, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be away from my kids anymore. I don't want to do this and, and go get a minor league opportunity and do the same thing I did the last two years. Um, so I made the choice there to go home and, and call it a day. A lot of the times when we get to this point in an episode, it's like, well, you know, how did you decide what you were going to do next? What is, you know, how do you fill that void? Is it scary? It sounds like the steps that you had taken while you were coming on up in the minors and diversifying your interest and thinking about life after baseball, did that, was it a pretty effortless, you know, off ramp? It, was it easy to say I'm done? Any, any fear there, anything like that at all? I mean, there wasn't, uh, it was pretty easy for me to make that decision at that point. I proved to myself I could get back to full strength and full health. Um, the velocity was back up. The movement was there. Um, I felt good from that standpoint. And I think if I wouldn't have done that, if I would have just called it a day during that rehab process, there would have been regrets, um, knowing that I was back to full strength and could compete and made that decision to go ahead and walk away at that point, I think it was the best thing I could have done for myself. I didn't have any regrets of walking at that point. I've had a few moments of like, man, I, I, I missed the clubhouse. I missed the competition on that side. That's been the hardest thing to replace um, or to find an alternative aspect for. So, you know, I, I played some basketball, you know, now it's golf. It's just, it's always finding a place to have that competitive outreach and uh, our competitive outlet and then having the group of guys where you can still, you know, have that clubhouse mentality. Golf is the absolute go-to too, because you're going to be competing against yourself forever on that one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, and I think that for me was, was the reason why I could, I could step away. It's, it was set up. I set it up for myself. We set it up for our family, but I gave myself the ability to get back, and still made the decision. Like we mentioned, you you wear a lot of different hats now. Um, the the wine venture that we mentioned, if you're ever in Fort Worth or my hometown of Bernie, Texas, folks, 38th and Vine, it's awesome, wonderful place. How how has baseball helped in your your post business life, and has it hurt at all? It helps it from the standpoint that there's always a conversation with people. Um, as soon as people find out I played baseball, that's what we're going to talk about. And as soon as we can talk about something of that nature, they become comfortable. Um, it's, it's just how it is. Like people are always looking how to connect to somebody. And you know, my, what I mainly do is uh, residential and commercial real estate, but that's my main Avenue. Um, the wine bars, uh, the coffee shop, the expansion on all of that. My wife runs most of that at this point, and my job is just to, I do some business meetings and things of like that on the expansion, but um, the real estate's really where I'm at. And that's the, the communication game. That's the relationships. Uh, everything I do is based off referrals, based off of people coming to me, and, and it's, it's all built through trust and, and um, responsibility and reliability. And coming up through baseball, you know, there's only one person that can make you or break you, and it's you. And it's the same thing in real estate. It's the same thing with the 
with the restaurants and and expanding those it's it's trusting yourself trusting your gut and going for it because at the end of the day if you don't nobody else will and nobody else is going to make you money in this world and so you know we've we've had a pretty uh, jennifer likes to put it this way we've already lived a life together starting another one so we have that opportunity to understand how to do it i'm in sales as well and i always say that playing sports but especially like baseball is such a a great crash course for how to be successful in, in sales or just in business in general. The, the, the experience in, in sharing a clubhouse or talking to and dealing with people uh, from all different kinds of backgrounds is just, is so invaluable. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised that you've been able to find the success that you, that you've had. Cause it, it just, it makes all the, all the difference in the world. Just that, that life experience just through sport. Well, it allows, it allows you to talk to somebody, you know, without any ulterior motives or anything like that. And I can build relationships with not having to, you know, I, I go into relationships with people where I never tell them what I do until they ask me what I do. And it's, it's building trust because at the end of the day, um, if I sell somebody a house or sell somebody a commercial building and they're at the same country club, I am, I'm going to be seeing them on a weekly basis and I don't I don't want to cause any bad blood anywhere. It's it's just really, everything's relationship based. Absolutely. So if you could go back and give yourself your 21 year old self a pep talk right before you signed, what would that pep talk look like? It would be the smartest words I ever heard and never followed until after my career. And it was um, Eric Young told me this. We're standing in the outfield. I'm going through my rehab process on my shoulder. And he looked at me and he goes, don't ever come back until you're a hundred percent. He goes, I don't care if you're 99% until you're a hundred, don't ever step on this field because it will murder you. And I didn't really realize I understood what he was saying, obviously, but it's to me, it was, I wanted to get back because I wanted to be back on that mound. And uh, when I came back off of uh, my rehab assignment, I wasn't, I was probably 80%, 85%. And, but we were going to Oakland and playing at the Coliseum where this is the team that drafted me. This is where I came up from my mind. I know all these guys. I wanted to be back for it. And uh, I forced myself back and it was the worst thing I could have done. And, you know, I translate that into, you know, in baseball, it was don't come back until you're hundred percent and you can put everything on the field, but in business and in everything of, of my, you know, that we have going on, it's don't make a decision don't do anything until you have a hundred percent commitment behind it. You have a hundred percent of your body behind it and your mind behind it. Then we can make that decision. But if it's one of those weeks where we've been working 80 hours, it's 11 o'clock at night. It is shut it down. We'll make this decision tomorrow. And everything is always based off of the mindset of a hundred percent towards it right now or shut it down. Awesome. Well, I got a little quick rapid fire for you. Then I'll let you get out of here. Yeah. Favorite minor league ballpark. Ooh, minor league ballpark. Um, gosh, that one's tough. I really love Frisco because of the pool and just the atmosphere around there. Triple uh, mm-hmm. A wise, Durham by far. Oh, the the goat. Yeah, um, and that's, Kane County was awesome, but I think it's changed. But yeah, those those are those would be at Frisco and then then Durham. The Bulls all favorite big, yeah. The I mean the Bull just the experience. I've never I've never been to a minor league game where the fans were as into the game as much as they are in Durham. Yeah, it's it's a wild experience. Um, favorite big league ballpark? Easy PNC Pittsburgh. The view. The view is fantastic. The uh, the clubhouse is great there. The food was good, but that that view is just un- unmatched. Best hitter you ever faced. Um, statistically, the best hitter I ever faced, uh, probably Pujols. Or who? Yeah, I mean, or who, it could be who gave you the toughest time, who was the most intimidating. I mean, Pujols probably. Yeah, the toughest the face was Casey McGee. Casey McGee is, I think, five for seven off me with the cycle. And if you know, <laughs> he like he was like two fifty and didn't move very well. But I just I've had the worst at bats I've ever had were against him. And the first time I faced him, he ran, you know, we had a, like an eight or nine pitch at bat. He shoots a single through the right side on me. 
he comes up to me the next day where I'm heading out to the bullpen. He goes, man, your stuff's nasty. That's awesome. Keep doing it. And then he proceeds to just annihilate me for the next two years. <laughs> Favorite wine you've ever had? Uh, Jay Davies. So the Jamie is, uh, it's out of uh, Napa. It is so good. It's like a, it's got a little chocolate hint to it. It's only, you can only get it from, uh, from their winery out there. And last one, everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Nightmare bus rides from the minor leagues? Yeah. I mean, you played in the Texas league, so there, there's some brutal, brutal stretches in that one. Yeah. But I was only there for like a month and a half. Um, Texas league was brutal. I, I don't have any like night. I mean, everything on the bus was a nightmare. You got people sleeping. I guess probably my worst one was the, the month where I was the guy on the floor. Well, the guy that I had to share a seat with, we switched off one month. He would sleep on top of the bed or on top of the seat. And then the next other guy would sleep underneath. And it was, uh, I can remember his name, Mike Banaka. And he was probably 285 pounds. And he was a sweaty guy. And having him above me while I'm oh, no. blanket on the floor was not fun. Oh, that was tough. And, uh, and then when he got up to AAA, he got up there the next year. And I looked at him and I go, there ain't no way in hell you're sitting next to me. That's a that's a nightmare situation. Uh, Sam Dumble, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, thanks so much. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to Sam Dumble for coming on the show, walking us through his career. Again, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate and leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And remember, episodes come at you every other Tuesday. So we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>